Coming up this hour, what does it mean to pray for the president? And then we're joined for two segments by author Ryan Bomberger. You're listening to The Common Good. Everybody, welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Normally joined by Ian Simpkins, but not today. Ian is out today. My name is Brian Fromm, flying solo today. So we are glad to have you on what is a sunny day in Chicago. I was just telling somebody yesterday that it's just always gray at this time of year. And now I look out the window up here where I'm doing the show from, and it is a beautiful sunny day. Still cold, but hey, if we can see blue and we can see sun, uh, we are not going to complain. So we're glad that you're joining us for a little bit of our of your day. Uh, and uh, hopefully we're looking forward to a great show. Coming up here in a little bit, we're going to be joined by a guest by the name of Ryan Bomberger, author of a new book called Not Equal, uh, and also the co-founder of the Radiance Foundation. And Ryan's going to join us for two segments later in the hour. You're going to want to join us for that. A uh, couple things. Remember, if you want to find the things we, we are talking about or the interviews we do, you can find them at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Common Good Talk. You can also go online to 1160hope.com or get our podcast wherever it is. You get your podcasts. Go ahead, subscribe, rate, and review. Uh, we are grateful to those of you who do that. Uh, and it's just good to be together today. Again, Ian is not going to be with us today, but he will be back with us uh, hopefully uh, tomorrow. And until then, we will hold down the fort. So yesterday was the inauguration. And it, again, if you weren't with us yesterday, I was talking about it and saying, regardless of your politics, regardless of who you voted for, there is always just a, a grandeur uh, and a gravity and a celebration kind of a, it feels important when the inauguration happens, whether it's the actual ceremony where you see yesterday, President Biden putting his hand on the Bible and, and reciting uh, reciting uh, his oath of office, or it was in the evening time with all those fireworks going off and all those singers. It, there, there's an, there's something to the peaceful, and thankfully yesterday was peaceful, to the peaceful transfer of power uh, that basically says no one person, no one man or woman is above uh, our constitution and above uh, who we are as a country, that every four years, uh, we inaugurate, we put in another president, or we uh, bring back the one for a second term who had just completed his first term. It is it is a beautiful thing uh, about our democracy, and that's what we saw yesterday. And again, I don't. I think you can feel that way regardless of who you voted for, uh, or who it is, uh, or whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. I think it is important. But now we get on to the business of governing. Uh, and uh, President Joe Biden wakes up today and the pomp and the circumstance is done. And now he's got to roll up his sleeves and put an administration together and deal with things like covid and the vaccine. And uh, and, and you know, let yesterday, uh, President Biden already signed a bunch of executive orders. And so kind of hitting the ground running. President Biden, Vice President Harris and their people. And so the question is, uh, for those of you. Uh, who are Christ followers, uh, myself and Ian, as you know, uh, we are both pastors. If you've listened to this show at all, we are both pastors first. Uh, but if you are a Christ follower, regardless of if you voted for Joe Biden or if you voted for Donald Trump or you voted for neither of them, uh, you've probably heard the call in the last 24 hours, 48 hours. Uh, and you've heard it on this show in these airwaves. Pray for the president. That we are called to 
pray for the president. We don't just pray for the president if it's a president that we voted for. Uh, but we are called to pray for the president. And I, I want to kick off the show talking about that as we're really in the first full day of a Biden administration. And if we're honest, I would guess more of you listening today than not did not vote for him. So what does it mean for the church, for the Christ followers to rise up and pray for the president? Because that's what we're called to do. And so what does it mean? What does it look like? I know you're probably like, what do you mean? What does it mean? It means we pray for him. No, no. What does it actually look like? What are we praying for? So at Relevant Magazine, uh, they had an article today just entitled How to Pray for a President. And it, uh, the author goes on to say this. Uh, the relationship between faith and country has always been a tenuous one. Yet, regardless of how you might feel about having this motto on our currency and God we trust, the question of who we trust is ultimately an important one to consider. For those of us who are Christ followers, he says, the truth is that no administration, no party and no political system will ever fully represent all of the values that we hold as members of God's kingdom. And Christians, like everyone else, have divided over who they voted for in our recent election, regardless of how you voted. It's clear our nation is facing many challenges and the debates over what we need to be done from here are deep and complex. And it goes on to say, so how do we come together today? Ah, isn't that the question? Well, I think that we do that, that we do what we have always done. We pray and we work for transformation. Now, as in times past, we must be people of prayer who humbly serve alongside those in authority for the greater glory of God. And so that, that article calls us to pray. Uh, but then I want to take us over to another relevant magazine article written by Tyler Huckabee entitled Dr. Russell Moore on how he is going to pray for Joe Biden. So this is an interview with Dr. Moore. Uh, Dr. Moore is a lightning rod. I love Russell Moore. I when he speaks, I tend to agree and I tend to listen, not always, but uh, often. And so Tyler Huckabee, Tyler Huckabee here, he is relevance executive editor. Uh, he did an interview uh, with Russell Moore, and it was uh, it was really fascinating, and there's so much to it. So I, I want you to go to our Facebook page and read it. Uh, but there's so much to it about how Russell Moore felt about how the Trump administration ended, and how he felt to be kind of a uh, you know, like I said, a lightning rod for many people, and 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 how he's wrestled with things. Uh, but I want to read the last question that Tyler Huckabee asks him because I think Russell Moore's answer is very enlightening here. Uh, Tyler asks. What's your prayer for Joe Biden over the next four years? So essentially asking the question I just posed for us, what are our prayers going to be for this new administration? How do we pray? And here was how Russell Moore answered. Russell Moore said, I pray for Joe Biden in some ways that I would pray for any president or any leader for wisdom and humility, but especially for him right now, I'm praying for the ability to unify. We've got to get beyond this. To use the lyric from Larry Norman, uh, Russell Moore went on to say, do you really think the way to bring about the peace is to sacrifice your children and kill all your enemies? That's sort of the mentality that is politically short-term useful in America right now. And we have to have people who are willing to short-circuit that and to say, I'm willing to listen to views I disagree with and to grow. Honestly, Moore goes on to say, President Obama and I disagreed on a lot of things. We agreed on things, too. But he was always willing and eager to listen to people who disagreed with him. I think Joe Biden has shown that in the past. And I hope that that's the way that he decides to be as president. And what's that going to mean? And what that's going to mean is saying there are going to be some things that we would make me my base happy if I said or if I did. 
And I'm going to have to take into account the whole country and maybe disappoint people who support me just like I will disappoint people who oppose me sometimes. So there's Russell Moore saying, you want to know what I'm praying for? I'm praying for wisdom, for humility. Man, what if we had a president? What if our president was able to live those out? Wisdom, humility, and I'm praying for the ability to unify. That's a lot of what Joe Biden talked about in his inaugural address yesterday. And again, those of you who especially didn't vote for him, you might have rolled your eyes or or you, you, you didn't really listen to much of it. But but when he called the country to unity, we as Christians can pray, Lord, bring about that unity. Help our president bring about that unity. Help him model that with wisdom and humility, as Russell Moore says here. So I want to start the show there today by saying, what does it look like to actually take up the call to pray for our new president, whether you voted for him or not? Let us pray that he succeeds. Let us pray that he has wisdom and humility. Let us pray uh, that he will bring unity and that our country will be stronger for him. And so that's our call, Christ followers, uh, Romans 13 and in other places that we pray for those in power. And so that's where I wanted to start today. Let's be men and women who pray. Coming up next, Ryan Bomberger, the author of Not Equal, Not Equal, Civil Rights Gone Wrong, and also the co-founder of the Radiance Foundation. Ryan is going to join us for two segments here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, hope for your life. My name is Brian Fromm, joined normally by Ian Simpkins, but Ian is out today, so I am flying solo. Really glad to have you with us. Well, it's actually a sunny day out here in Chicago. Very pleasant. And so we are glad for you to be here. Uh, we often talk about on this show, one of our favorite things over the two years that we've been doing the show is to talk to interesting people, to have guests on and to be able to have conversations with them. And so for the next two segments, I'm thrilled that we're going to be joined uh, by the author of a book called Not Equal and also the co-founder of the Radiance Foundation. His name is Ryan Bomberger. Ryan, thanks so much for joining us, man. Hey, it's great to be here today with you. It's our pleasure. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to our audience so they can get to know you a little bit? Sure. My wife, Bethany, my favorite person on the planet, we both <laughs> co-founded the Radiance Foundation because we wanted to illuminate that every human life has purpose. And it's partly based on my story as well as my wife's story. My story is ooh, one that sometimes even those who claim to be pro-life have a hard time embracing. I yeah. was conceived in rape. My birth mm. mom went through the horror and the violence of rape. And yet not only gave me the gift of life. She gave me the gift of adoption. And so I grew up in a tiny family of 15. I have six brothers, six sisters, 10 of us were adopted. And my parents just shattered that myth of the unwanted child. I was adopted mm. and loved. And, you know, the fact that you know, the circumstances of our conception do not change the condition of our worth. I understand this so truly. So when people ask, well, why are you pro-life? Well, that would be why <laughs> it's yeah. in my DNA. I'm also, you know, a dad of four awesome kiddos two of whom were also adopted. And so that's a little bit of my background. I'm a creative professional. I used to work as a creative director in ad agency world. And I love creating stuff that just illuminates that whether you're planned or unplanned, able or disabled, that every human life has purpose. Oh, that's powerful. I'd love to know more about your family. 13 children, 10 of them adopted. Just uh, A, what was that family like to grow up in? It must have been fascinating. But B, what, what drove your parents to do that? That is a huge, enormous step that you'd never hear about. So uh, what was that family like and what drove them to adopt so many children? 
what was normal for me, but I guess yeah, people on yeah. the outside like, wait a minute, how did that work? Exactly. Did you guys all get to eat? Yes, we got to eat. Do you remember their names? Yes, I remember their names. But you know, I grew up on a farm in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, and we okay. just we were loved. My my mom, Andrea Bomberger, my dad, Henry Bomberger, just loved the mess out of us. And that actually stemmed from their love for, for God. When you love God, the natural outflow of that is loving people. And so when people ask, well, what influenced them or what motivated them to adopt, it was love and brokenness. Hmm. So my mom was actually placed in a children's home for one year's time while her parents were separating. She had an alcoholic father who was emotionally abusive. And so her parents were separating. And so for one year's time, a five-year-old was placed in this home and it radically and beautifully changed her life. Hmm. It's where she made a commitment to God as she saw other kids who never had anybody visit them. At least her mom and her dad visited her separately, but no one came to see, for instance, this one little girl who had physical disabilities and it broke a five-year-old's heart. And that's where she made a promise to God to be, you know, help me be a mom to those who don't have one. That's Hmm. where the heart of adoption began. And then she met an amazing man, my dad, Henry, who share the same heart because if you're going to adopt 10 kids, you better be on the same wavelength. I'm just saying. So that's where this whole heart for adoption came from. And it's been passed on to so many of my siblings. I mentioned I'm an adoptive father as well, but a number of my siblings and their children are also now adoptive parents. Man, that's super impressive. And I just want to ask one more question about your childhood. At some point you found out, you figured out or found out or were told not only that you were adopted, but, but how it was that you were conceived. What was that like for you as a child? What was that like, or maybe as an adult, I don't know when you found out, but what was that processing like? And, and just what kind of influence did that have on your life? Well, it was initially devastating. I found out actually when yeah. I was 13. So I had mm. this this story in my mind, apparently, that was not the right storyline. And so it was during this argument that it came out. Wow. My mom had thought she'd expressed it earlier, but apparently didn't understand what rape was. So at the age of 13, you know, teenage years are already crazy enough. They're, <laughs> they're already tumultuous enough. Hey, let's throw a whole rewrite of your origin story. <laughs> oh and But because my parents loved me so much, I didn't fall apart. It, it was devastating, but I didn't fall apart. I understood how to to use it constructively. In fact, I was in eighth grade at the time, and I ended up using it for a speech, a persuasion speech in public mm. school about abortion. And it was the first time my friends, my teachers ever heard this, my, my own story. And I realized that I had a story to tell. And so, yes, it was devastating, but I'm just a firm believer that God enables triumph to rise from tragedy all the time. Yeah. Yeah. That's powerful. Uh, so in the, in the abortion debate that we often hear going on in the news or wherever, read it on social media, uh, your story is often the one where people will say, except if by rape, right? Except if rape occurred or this and that. Uh, how does that make you feel when you hear that? And how do you answer that for people besides telling them your story? What, when you reason with someone or talk to them, what, what do you talk to them uh, about that argument that people make? You know, it is always the arguments the go to all the time. I, I literally am the 1% that's used 100% of the time to justify mm-hmm. abortion. And I speak on a lot of college campuses. What I find is that my story is so disarming because I'm that tangible example that in the abstract, it's so easy for people to reject it mm-hmm. and to reject me. But then when I explain things I've been able to do in my life and then I say, oh, by the way, and then I share, usually I share this little video. It's about a minute and a half. And at the end, it shows conceived and raped, adopted and loved. Mm. And wow, the reaction is really... It, it can only come from someone being able to speak that personal testimony, being that tangible example in front of people. Uh, I think that moves their hearts. And so 
I change a lot of people's minds. I mean, mm-hmm. God is able to to speak through me to even people who claim to be pro-life. There are many who have come up to me and said, I've held on to these fringe examples, to these exceptions, and you've changed my heart on this. And yeah. so, you know, it's not everyone. I mean, there's still people who still hate me after they leave the lecture. <laughs> but I don't know why. I think I'm a nice guy. But but I do love that I have this this story. And that's that's the power of of brokenness. We can use our past brokenness to help bring breakthrough to other yeah. people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and as we said, you're going to stay for a second segment where I want to dive more into, like you said, people's reactions and what it is that your foundation is doing. But uh, why don't we close this out? We often hear a lot about in, instead of abortion, let's encourage people towards adoption. Uh, and you were adopted and you said you uh, you and your wife have adopted children and, and there's adoption as part of your family. Could you help people understand the beauty of adoption, what it's added to your life as a father and uh, just kind of paint a picture uh, that it's not like just as lesser alternative, but really just the beauty that adoption is. It really is. I mean, I, I grew up in a situation where my my dad, for instance, loved children that other men abandoned. He became a father to the fatherless over and over again. And so there is beauty in that. People often think of it as like the last resort. And it's not always the answer. It's one of the answers to the alternatives, obviously, to the violence of abortion. Mm-hmm. But it unleashes purpose. I mean, we have a great example. There's a great example in, in scripture. J- Joseph was not Jesus' biological father, mm. but he chose to be his father. He could have chosen abandonment, but he chose adoption instead. He could have chosen to leave, but he chose to love instead. And that to me typifies adoption. Adoption happens because in the natural and the supernatural, there is brokenness and it brings healing and it brings wholeness. And it's an act of mercy and justice and love. Mm-hmm. I'm a little biased toward adoption. <laughs> I don't know if you can tell, but, but there are so many stories. People, you know, mainstream media loves to, to focus on anything that's negative and they very rarely talk about the positive, but the majority of adoption stories are positive and filled with warmth and beauty and, and show that, that love can transform and does transform all the time. Ah, it's such a good word. Again, you're listening to Ryan Bomberger. He's the author of Not Equal, also the co-founder of the Radiance Foundation. Go to radiance.life. That's www.radiance.life. And Ryan has been uh, super generous with us and our listeners. So we've got an offer for you. There's a special discount offer on the books, both uh, Not Equal and Pro-Life Kids. Just enter the promo code Common Good at the store radiance.life. So, Ryan, let's jump in right there. Just your book, Not Equal. What is it about? What is the heart behind this book that you wrote called Not Equal? You know, this is really about the civil rights movement and how it's been hijacked. And I I couldn't understand years ago when I started writing about abortions impact, for instance, in the black community, I couldn't understand why civil rights organizations weren't on our side. I mean, they're fighting against racism. They're fighting for the most disenfranchised, for the most marginalized. And who's more marginalized? And, and more vulnerable than black children who are aborted at rates five times higher. So mm-hmm. I started discovering that all these civil rights organizations, like ones that I grew up revering, NAACP, uh, National Urban League, they were all partnering with Planned Parenthood, the leading killer of black lives. Mm-hmm. And so I wrote this this book partly out of that and also because I wrote a no- news article about the NAACP. And I, you know, the, that acronym, I thought, well, here's a a name more befitting of them because of their radical position on abortion, which was support of abortion through the entire pregnancy and their active partnerships with Planned Parenthood and helping to raise money for Planned Parenthood. So I called them the National Association for the Abortion of Colored People. 
Yeah, they didn't like it. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> they didn't like it at all. And they sued me. They sued the Radiance Foundation, which I find ironic because you can't tell over the radio, but I, I have brown skin. So they sued a brown guy for exercising one of my most basic civil rights, which is free speech. Mm. Took two years in federal court and we won. But this book was really birthed out of not understanding why civil rights has gone wrong. And so- I wrote this book and it really just, it details, you know, abortion, adoption, fatherlessness, racism, free speech, religious liberty, you know, judicial activism, judges gone wild. I mean, it just, just touches on these issues all in the context of God given purpose. And I'm a factivist. So you also find as creative as I am, and I love creating and designing, but I'm also all about the facts and doing the research. I mean, there are hundreds of footnotes. So if you want to go and find out, is what he's saying true? Yes, it is. And and here are the citations. But I really just want to equip people to understand how to look at these issues, how to look at the issue of abortion in a, a much broader context, because context yeah. brings clarity. And that's what yeah. I'm all about. Oh, that's awesome. What, what's been the response? My guess is you write on all of those issues and you're going to get a lot of cheers and a lot of uh, of arrows shot your way. Uh, so has it been what you expected? What has been the response to the book that you've gotten? You know, interestingly, one one time I was speaking at the University of Louisville and one of the professors there within the first few moments of me even speaking, just shouted out, well, you're an Uncle Tom. I thought, Mm. well, actually, that's not a pejorative, because if you actually read Uncle Tom's Cabin, you're calling me the one who sacrifices life so that others could be set free. (laughs) Okay, yes, I'm Uncle Tom for life. In fact, that's one of the chapters in this book. So I get that. I've gotten that for so many years of my life, and I don't even care the name calling, whatever. But when you're so rooted and understand why you believe what you believe, and you love people enough to speak the truth and live the truth, of course, it doesn't matter how people try to bring you down. So the response, a lot more love than there has been hate. Mm. And the hate has typically come from the one place where they're supposed to be challenged to think, challenged with different ideas, college campuses. And that's where most of the hate has come from. But people have been praising it. People have thanked me so much for bringing this context to them, bringing this information, bringing my factivism to them. So I'm going to go with the people who love me and there you go. Just ignore the haters and still love them anyway. (laughs) Give them the respect that they don't give me, but I I will still love them anyway, because we're all creating God's image. And that's, it's a difficult balance because I do love me some sarcasm here and there, but it's always (laughs) as a creative, I try to figure out how do I communicate this? How do I, how do I communicate this truth in love and still be unapologetic about the, Mm. the raw truth that I'm trying to, to express. So and I try to do that through not equal. That's great. And uh, you speak a lot in that book and other places about abortion. Uh, now, tomorrow, I believe it's tomorrow's National Sanctity of Life Day. And so this is a very timely conversation. And so how do you speak to people who say, you know what, uh, I understand abortion. I'm just not against it. I don't think it's either uh, not a big deal or it's not something that we should fight against. Uh, how do you speak specifically on college campuses or to people in convert, however else? Uh, how do you speak to those people who may disagree with you about abortion? Well, you know, lovingly, and the, the, the whole issue about abortion, when people want to try to dismiss it, it's interesting to me because the civil rights movement and the, the abolition of slavery movements, they both have something very strongly in common with the pro-life movement. And it's all about personhood. Every human is a person. Every 
person is a human. Every, every person is a human being. I mean, the, you, you can't go any other way than that. And the, the issue is when you have, you know, the civil rights movement declaring, you know, men de- declaring, I am a man. Remember the signs, the pictures, I am a man having to t- tell people mm-hmm. I am a man. Here's the problem. Whenever any group of human beings gets to be the arbiters of human value, it never goes well. It never yeah. ends well throughout history. And so that's why we're seeing that same thing, which is why in, in our book, Pro-Life Kids, and this is why, you know, the National uh, Sanctity of Human Life Day is so important, not just for adults, but for children. So we, when we instill in young children a pro-life worldview, we don't have to work so hard to change the minds of an adult. Mm. But Bethany's book, Pro-Life Kids, it's a beautifully illustrated book. There's nothing else out there like it. It really captures that, that understanding of personhood, it captures the sense and the awe of, of the inherent and equal worth of every human being. One of the pages says it doesn't matter your size or your age. You have equal value, whatever the mm-hmm. stage. People will love the, the drawings. They'll love. In fact, there are 10 ways to figure out how to be a pro-life kid in your community. There are so many things that kids can learn from this book and adults are learning from this book as well. But that's why when we have a day like this, it helps remind us that every human life is precious in and out of the womb, every life. Yeah. Yeah. That's powerful. And with the last minute we have left here, two uh, minutes, what, I'm a pastor. We, we are speaking a lot to Christ followers. What would you say to churches out there? What are you, what's your hope for churches specifically uh, around the fight against abortion? What, what do you, what would you like to see churches doing? Come out of their silence. I mean, mm-hmm. evil flourishes when churches are silent about injustice, when churches are silent about abortion. I mean, we're, we're, we're called in Proverbs 31, eight through nine. It talks about being a voice for the voiceless. There is no one more voiceless than the unborn child. Mm-hmm. There's no one. And we're supposed to ensure justice for those being crushed. And this is what's happening. And we have to be motivated out of love. There are resources out there, pregnancy centers, adoption homes, and other parachurch organizations. But if the church doesn't speak up and defend the image bearers of God, which is every human being, who else will? Yeah. And so I just really want to encourage people to understand that it's out of love that we defend human dignity and that we, we believe that every human life has God-given purpose from day one, from the moment of conception. Absolutely. Ryan, thank you so much for being with us again. Ryan Bomberger, he's the author of Not Equal, Civil Rights Gone Wrong. Uh, and his wife, Bethany, has also wrote Pro-Life Kids. So here's what we want you to do. We want you to go to Radiance.life, R-A-D-I-A-N-C-E, Radiance.life. And for what they're doing for our listeners is if you go to the store there, enter the promo code Common Good at checkout, and you're going to receive 50% off either of those books, Not Equal or pro-life kids. We couldn't encourage you enough to do that. Well, Ryan, thanks so much, man. It was great to talk to you. Great to get to know you. And we really appreciate you joining us today. Thank you so much, Brian. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, joined normally by Ian Simpkins, but Ian is not with us today. Hopefully, Ian will be back tomorrow. 
Uh, so I'm just going to fly this solo. But we've got some great guests today, including Ryan Bomberger, who just joined us for the past two segments. I'd encourage you to go check out the podcast if you missed any of that interview with Ryan. Ryan's the author of Not Equal, Civil Rights Gone Wrong, and also the co-founder of the Radiance Foundation. And as a reminder, if you're interested in his book, Not Equal, or his wife's book, Pro-Life Kids, uh, go to radiance.life. That's radiance.life. Enter and go to the, you know, uh, go to the store there, get the books, and at checkout, enter the promo code Common Good. That's the promo code Common Good, and they are going to give you 50% off. You're not going to get that at Amazon. You're not going to get that other places. Go to radiance.life. Uh, tomorrow's National Sanctity of Life Day. So what better time to pick up this book? Ryan's story was unbelievable. If you missed it, uh, conceived by a, by a situation of rape. His, his birth mom decided to keep to, to still have him and not get an abortion, put him up for adoption. Uh, and now he, uh, speaks and, and, uh, speaks about adoption and the, uh, the opportunity of adoption and speaks against abortion. Just a powerful, powerful firsthand story. So again, radiance.life and you can check out their ministry and also check out their book. Well, I wanted to talk about a, uh, and I wanted you to listen here in a second uh, to uh, something I saw over at Christian Headlines. The title's this. It was written by Michael Faust. The title's just this. Stanford prof tells this to CNN. Companies should boot conservative media off of their platforms. Here's what I want you to do. His name, uh, his computer scientist's name is Alex Stamos. Uh, and he was having this conversation on reliable sources, I believe is the show. Uh, and he talked about the need to to remove some of this far right wing um, media. And so here, I want you to listen to this groups here. To me, one of the enduring images of January 6th is going to be that line of men in, in matching green tactical outfits with their hands on each other's shoulders, snaking their way through the disorganized mob. And that is effectively what we are facing online, and that you have a, a large number of people who are angry and aggrieved and who have been lied to by the right-wing news ecosystem, as well as online influencers, about the election, and who want to show that anger, and they want to feel like they're part of something. And in, within that disorganized mob, you have a small number of people who are highly organized and who really want to create violence. And so I think one of the things we have to do is we have to be careful to try to separate those out and to not allow that small group of organized people to speak on behalf of everybody. Um, that is one of the problems I think we'll, we'll have around media coverage of this is that the, the three percenters, the proud boys, folks like that, that they will be given an outsized influence and their messages will be amplified over and over again because their messages are extremely scary. Um, that those groups need to be tra treated like ISIS, effectively, right? There's a, a history here of uh, uh, both between law enforcement and the social media companies of being able to reduce the online presence and the influence of those groups. And then we have to work on the broader disinformation problem to try to turn down the anger that you see from that huge percentage of Republicans who believe that the election was stolen. All right, so we've been hearing a lot of that going around. Uh, Stamos says freedom of the press is being abused by some on the right who want to make money by spreading disinformation. He says it's now in the great economic interest of those individuals to become more and more radical. And I think that one of the places you can see this uh, is to the right of Fox News. And so he goes on to say places like Own and Newsmax, other things online uh, should be shut down. And And after what happened at the Capitol back on January the 6th, you're hearing a lot of this. 
Uh, you're hearing a lot of this. Stamos said we have to turn down the capability of these conservative influencers to reach these huge audience. There are people on YouTube, for example, who have a larger audience than daytime CNN uh, and other things. And so this conversation went on and it hasn't only been on places like CNN. Uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the Democratic rep out of New York, uh, talked about this on Instagram the other day. She said several members of Congress in some of my discussions have brought up media literacy because that is part of what happened here. And we're going to have to figure out how we reign in our media environment so that you can't just spew disinformation and misinformation. It's one thing to have differing opinions, but it's another thing entirely to just say things that are false. She went on to say there's absolutely a commission that's being discussed, but it seems to be more investigatory in style rather than truth and reconciliation. Uh, And so this is a conversation going on. It's on something uh, I think we all have to wrestle with. Like you got to step back a little bit and go, do they have a point? Uh, And what we all were outraged and hurt and saddened, I would assume all of us by what we saw at the Capitol on January the 6th, that was uh, barbaric and criminal. But is the answer for us to uh, start pulling media? Is the answer uh, for us to begin shutting down things that we that we deem as dangerous? And I would propose to you, well, I would love for you to go to our Facebook page, first of all, and let us know. I Give us specifically reasons why you think maybe uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is right or why Alex Stamos is right. Uh, we would love to hear that. Go to our Facebook, Twitter or Instagram page at Common Good Talk. But I would suggest that I don't agree with this. Uh, I would put out that I don't agree with that, that while I am horrified by what happened, uh, that one of the tenets of who we are uh, is is uh, a, a freedom of speech and that uh, I am concerned by what is out there. I've, I've talked to you about before that I watched the documentary. Um, what's that documentary on social media? Uh I'll think of it here in a second, but but about how uh, everything that social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram is doing uh, is done to sell us and it's done uh, with a purpose. Uh, and it's scary, but I don't think the answer is to then start shutting things down. A couple of reasons. One is because they're going to sprout up somewhere. It's going to come out somewhere. Uh, but two, who gets to make the call? Uh, who gets to make that decision? I think that's where this gets really dangerous. What happens when the decision is, you know what, we don't feel good about uh, Christian speech and therefore we think it's dangerous and discriminatory. And so therefore uh, we need to shut that down. What about when it's uh, the opposite political party? You can see uh, how this goes and goes and goes. Uh, And so, yes, are we horrified by what happened at the Capitol? Absolutely. But I do not think the answer is to shut down free speech. I think the answer is to for us as a society to better figure out how to combat misinformation, how to combat hateful speech, how to uh, how to teach, how to do whatever else it might be. I don't think the answer is just shut down. Maybe you think I'm wrong. Um, maybe you think I'm wrong. Oh, that plat- that uh, it was the social dilemma. That was uh, the documentary. It was the social dilemma and the social dilemma. The main point is that we, uh, we end up living in echo chambers online and it is really dangerous. I just don't think the answer is, therefore, let's go back in time and shut all of it down. Uh, it's it's here to stay. And so the question is, parents, are you walking your kids through how to handle social media 
and news and where to get real news and, and that kind of stuff. Uh, churches, are we helping our people? Uh, are you, when you get forwarded something on your email or through Facebook, do you automatically believe it? Or are you checking into it and trying to figure out what it is? Is it Christ-like? Is it even true? I don't think the answer is shut it down. I think the answer is that we've got to work hard, uh, even harder to be truth tellers and to uh, equip people and challenge people to not believe in disinformation, but that disinformation is here to stay. It's out there. And we have to decide how we are going to deal with it. You might think I'm totally wrong. So if you do, uh, go to our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. Maybe you think Alex Stamos is totally right and that AOC is totally right. Go ahead and tell us that at our Facebook page. Uh, or if you think I'm right, I'd really like to hear that at our Facebook page as well. Well, the first hour is in the book. Uh, coming up next hour, we're going to start by hearing from three of the former presidents at the inauguration yesterday, Presidents Obama. Bush and Clinton and some interesting words they had to say. That's coming up next year on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Coming up this hour, I want to talk about a poignant moment from the inauguration yesterday. And then we're joined by Michael Niebauer, pastor of Incarnation Church from State College, Pennsylvania. You're listening to The Common Good. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside, uh, I always say that, Ian's not here today. I'm so used to saying alongside Ian Simpkins, but Ian is not here today. He's here in heart, but not in uh, presence, so I am doing this show alone. My name is Brian Fromm. We are glad to have you with us today. We opened the show uh, last hour talking about the inauguration and, and just the the, the grandeur of it and, and that regardless of your politics, the inauguration, the coming uh, in of a new administration, the the peaceful. I know it wasn't peaceful two weeks ago or three weeks ago, but the peaceful yesterday transfer of power uh, reminds us that our democracy is bigger than any one administration, one party, one person. Uh, and, and I also encouraged you last hour. What does it look like for us to pray for a new president, uh, the same way we prayed for the old president. That that is our calling as Christ followers. I saw a great post. I believe it was Scott Sauls, uh, who basically posted the same thing he posted in January of 2017 and just changed the name from Trump to Biden. His point being, our calling as Christians is the same, whether it's a president that is part of your party whether you voted for that president or not, that that we still, like Romans 13 and other places, we still pray for our president. And so I, I want to continue to urge us as Christ followers to say, I'm going to, whether I voted for him or not, I am going to pray for President Biden. I'm going to pray for this administration. And we talked about in the first hour, what did, uh, it was Russell Moore who said, I'm going to pray for wisdom, for humility, uh, and for unity. And uh, such great things to pray for. And I would challenge you. We'll continue to challenge you. What does it look like to pray for this new president? Well, with that in mind, during the inauguration, I thought coming out of it, there were many uh, poignant and powerful moments. Uh, and one of those moments was a video that was shot by three former presidents, President Clinton, President Bush, and President Obama. Uh, and just pictured, I've always just thought to myself, what must it be like to be an ex-president uh, and to watch the inauguration of another president and to be there? That's such a small club 
that club of ex-presidents. There are things that only they can understand in each other's lives. It must just be amazing when they're together talking. And, and they wanted to, they shot a video in which they spoke uh, not just about, but to uh, our new president, President Biden. Uh, and I just found it fascinating and, and really powerful. It's a three minute long video. But I want to I want to focus on one specific spot. It's a minute and a half or so. So let's listen to that. Uh, and then I just want to point out some things. We've got to not just listen to folks we agree with, but listen to folks we don't. Uh, and you know, one of my fondest memories of the inauguration was uh, the the grace and generosity that President Bush showed me and Laura Bush showed Michelle. And it was a reminder that we can have fierce disagreements uh, and yet recognize each other's common humanity and that as Americans, uh, we have more in common than what separates us. I think if uh, Americans would uh, love their neighbor like they would like to be loved themselves, uh, a lot of the division in our society would end. That's what this means. It's a new beginning. And everybody needs to get off their high horse and reach out to their friends and neighbors and try to make it possible. If, in fact, as George said, we're looking for what binds us together, uh, the American people are strong, they're tough, uh, they can get through hardship, uh, and uh, there's no problem they can't solve. Uh, when we're working together. I think that was the theme of Joe's inaugural speech. And uh, I think all of us discovered that we're at our best when we're uh, all moving in the same direction. Okay, again, for me, I don't know how you feel about these things, but the power of seeing three former presidents, three ex-presidents together uh, and to hear their voices, I, I find that really uh, to be powerful and poignant. But But what they said... Uh, was so, I think, important. And, and you keep hearing this term unity. And you keep hearing this desire. President Biden talked a lot about it in his inauguration. But you hear these three men, uh, former President Clinton, former President Bush, and former President Obama, talking about uh, what does unity look like? Uh, President Bush saying, if we all just treated our neighbor the way we wanted to be treated, taking that straight from the pages of scripture. If he said we could be a nation that treats others the way we want to be treated. President Obama talked about if we were all kind of going in the same direction. And I, uh, earlier, uh, President Obama talked about uh, how poignant and how important in his own inauguration it was when President Bush and Laura Bush uh, were so gracious to the Obamas who he went on to say, we disagree about so much uh, policy wise, but we can be friends. We can be gracious. We can want the best for our nation. And I just found that to be so inspiring and challenging. And this idea of unity, what does it look like? How do we get there? And the reason everybody's talking about unity is because we're so divided and we get that we are so divided right now as a country between red and blue, Republican, Democrat, that even speaking of unity can feel so foreign. It can feel almost forced. It could feel like pie in the sky, like that could never happen. But I think these men who led the country, they give a little bit of a way forward there. When President Bush talks about, uh, you know, when President Bush says, uh, think of your neighbor, uh, put your neighbor's needs before your own. 
straight from the words of Jesus, then there can be unity even in disagreement because we're going to treat each other with respect. We're going to treat each other with decency. We're going to disagree without being disagreeable. And that is unifying. Unity doesn't mean uniformity. Doesn't mean that everything has to be agreed upon. That's not what we're looking at. We're not looking for a nation or churches of uniformity. We're looking for unity, even in our differences. President Obama talking about wanting us to go in the same direction, that we're kind of rowing in the same direction. What does it look like for our nation to grow in unity, to be less divided? How do we get there? And I would suggest that one of the ways we get there is to not just uh, get into our echo chambers. It is to not treat, if you're a Republican, the Democrats as the enemy and vice versa. If you're a Democrat, it is to not treat Republicans as an enemy. It's to be reminded that we are the United States of America and that we can then disagree while still being on the same team, while still being in the same with for the same purpose. That's what it means to be united, not uniform, but united. And, and, and I, I long for that for our country. But I also long for that for our churches. The disunity of our nation uh, has bled down into disunity within our churches. And that's a problem. Jesus prayed in John 17 that his people would be unified. Again, didn't say that they'd be uniform in everything they believe and everything they think, but that they would have unity based in their common devotion to Jesus. Is that our goal, my friends? That's the question that we all have to wrestle with. Am I a unifier? Or am I a divider? I would suggest that as Christ followers, we are to work hard. And it's hard work. We are to work hard at unity, unity in our nation, unity in our churches. Uh, and that, that I think this will really shine a light. This will make us look different in a divided culture. So I found this to be an, an important, poignant moment uh, in our uh, in the inauguration yesterday. Go ahead and give it a listen if you haven't done so at our Facebook page, uh, Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. Coming up next, I want to talk about a story out of the sports world from from my favorite baseball team. Coming up next year on the Common Good AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Common Good AM 1160. Hope for your life. My name is Brian Fromm, joined normally by Ian Simpkins, but Ian is not with us today. Hopefully, Ian will be back tomorrow. It's just not the same without Ian here. Ian, I hope you're listening. Just not the same without you here, but uh, we are soldiering on until you return. So hopefully, Ian will be back tomorrow. Uh, if you've missed any of our show today, a couple different places you can go. One is Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all the social media places. Go to uh, Common Good Talk. You can also go online to 1160hope.com. That's the website where you can listen to old shows. You can also see Ian and I smiling faces and read our bios and stuff like that. Also find other shows on AM 1160. Lots of great stuff throughout the day. And so I'd encourage you to check out stuff going on here at the station. Tomorrow is my 21st wedding anniversary. And my wife and I are trying to figure out what to do in the midst of COVID here and things being closed. But I don't feel old enough, friends, to have a having been married for 21 years, but tomorrow is that day. And so uh, very excited for that. But you always feel that pressure the day before. Better, better make it a good one. So last year for our 20th, we were able to go on a trip to Mexico. So <laughs> not doing that this year, obviously, uh, but uh, hopefully celebrating anyway. So that is tomorrow. Well, I wanted to highlight a difficult story out of the sports world. 
so the New York Mets, if you've listened to this show at all, you know that uh, I have two favorite teams in this world. Baseball team, New York Mets. Football team, New York Giants. These are my teams. Like, why do you, you you're, you're a radio guy, a pastor in Chicago. Why are you following the New York teams? Well, I grew up in New Jersey, uh, about 45 minutes outside New York City. I didn't move out into the Midwest until I came to college, went to Wheaton College, and uh, there met my wife. And once we got married, uh, she was from Milwaukee. I was from New Jersey. So we settled in Wheaton. Uh, and so that's how I ended up out here. But before that, growing up, big New York sports fan. And I've kept that raising my kids this way. New York Mets, New York Giants. So the New York Mets, uh, they've got a new owner who is the richest owner in all of organized sport, in all of major sports, which I'm pretty excited about. I think the Mets are going to get good here and uh, hopefully we'll sustain that good because I haven't seen him win a World Series since 1986. Uh and so all everything has been very positive for the Mets right now. But they had a story the other day that kind of turned that. And it's a hard story, but I want to use it as a jumping off point for us as Christ followers. So if you'll bear with me, I want to use this not so much about the story, uh, but I want to use it uh, as a jumping off point, because I think what happened in this story happens often, way too often in the church. And I think that. Uh, that uh, the Bible has a lot to say about it. So the story is of the Mets' new general manager, Jared Porter. Uh, Jared, Jared, Porter, Jared Porter was the general manager for the Mets, but he was fired the other day after ESPN reported that he sent a female reporter sexually explicit and unsolicited texts in 2016. Uh, Steve Cohen, the new owner of the Mets, tweeted, "There will be, there should be zero tolerance for this." type of behavior. The announcement came after ESPN reported Monday evening that the woman, a female correspondent who was unidentified by the network, said at one point she ignored more than 60 messages from Porter before he sent a lewd photo. The Mets did not learn of the text until this report came out. ESPN, which said it had reviewed the text, reported that Porter apologized to the woman in 2016 by text after she uh, after some inappropriate stuff. And she wrote uh, and he said, we're extremely inappropriate, very offensive and getting out of line. That's what she uh, said to him in a text. Uh, and and so according to Porter, he he tried to back out, say uh, it was this or that. But uh, the Mets president, Sandy Alderson, released a statement saying that Jared has acknowledged to me his serious error in judgment. He apologized. But uh, more came out over the night and he was fired. This actually happened while Porter was employed by the Chicago Cubs in 2016. And the Cubs said they had no idea of this anyway. So it's just a terrible story. He ended up getting fired. He was general manager for 37 days. Uh, so a couple different things about this story. One, it's another story of a man in power using that power in an abusive way uh, over a woman. And men, this just can't happen. It just can't happen. Uh, and and he got what he deserved uh, through his actions. But it's also a case of the lies and the cover up being actually what cost him his job. Right. This happened in 2016. And when he was questioned about it, he denied it. When the Mets questioned him about it, he denied it again or he downplayed it until he was shown the text and, and somebody had the text and he was caught. And the Mets had no choice, not that they wanted to keep him, but they had no choice but to fire him. And here's my point. If I could turn this to us, especially Christ followers out there, uh, how many times in our life uh, is it the cover up that makes things worse? It does. It, his cover up wasn't worse than what he did, but it compounded the problem. 
And, and the Bible speaks a lot about what we are supposed to do with our sin. When we are in sin, what are we supposed to do? Because here's what happens. So often our first inclination is hide, run, lie, push away, kind of guard our reputation. And we don't want people to see the ugliness of what we may have done or what may be in our soul. And so we we deflect and we go. And the Bible talks about in so many different places, the damage that does to us, to our relationship to God, to our relationships with other people. And a lot of us get that. A lot of you out there, some of you out there may be uh, like, yeah, I'm running. I'm hiding. I know what this is. But the Bible says other things, right? The Bible says, confess the book of James, confess your sins to one another. Pray for each other so that you may be healed. The act of confession, not publicly to everybody. You don't need to put all your sins on Facebook or whatever, but but finding that trusted person, that act of bearing, bringing my things that are in darkness and bringing them to light. The Bible says that that opens the door, not to shame, uh, not even to, um, you know, consequences always, but to healing. Confess your sins to one another so that you may be healed. We are people of light, not of darkness. And when we try to keep things in the darkness away and hidden, that's when we get ourselves in trouble. I just want you to think about if you've been a listener to the show at all, how many times over the last year, two years of this show, have Ian and I done stories where Christian leader X, whatever his or her name is, usually his, whatever their name is, uh, was covering up and living a lie for a year, two years, a decade, however long it might be. And then eventually it comes out and everything explodes. Ministry gets and people go, I didn't even see this coming. That's exactly what's happening with Jared Porter here. People are going, I, I didn't see this coming. I didn't know that this was in his background. But what about when we sin, when we stumble? If instead of hiding and darkness and deflection, but we instead go, I'm going to bring this to light. I'm going to confess. There's going to be pain here. There's going to be consequences, but that I know that when I bring it to the light, when I am a truthful, when I, when I bring things to truth, when I confess that that's where healing is found. Confess your sins to God and there, uh, you know, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Are you hiding stuff from God right now? Confess your sins to one another so that you may be healed. Do you believe that? Uh, even this story out of uh, the sports world, I think, once again shows us the consequences of sin. And it also shows us the consequences of hiding our sin and how it compounds itself. And so I think there's people out there that need to hear that today. I just wanted you to hear that. Uh, a sad story. Uh, he got what he deserved, deserved to lose his job and he did. So I'd love to hear what you have to say at our Facebook page, Common Good Talk. Uh, coming up next, we're excited to be joined by Michael Niebauer. Michael is a pastor of Incarnation Church in State College, Pennsylvania. We're going to discuss his new article up at the Gospel Coalition. Coming up next, you're on the Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Everybody, welcome back to the Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Uh, my name, I must said alongside Ian Simpkins, but Ian is not with us today. I'm just used to that. Ian is out today. Hopefully, he'll be back with us tomorrow. My name is Brian Fromm. We're really glad to have you joining us. 
and we are thrilled to be joined uh, for this segment by Michael Niebauer. Michael is the author of an article we want to discuss from the Gospel Coalition, Navigating the Pressure to Preach on Every Current Event. That is so timely, Michael. But before we jump into that article, uh, A, thanks for joining us. But B, why don't you tell our audience a little bit about yourself? Sure. Thanks, Brian. Yeah, I'm a a pastor of Incarnation Church in State College, Pennsylvania, right next to Penn State. Uh, I'm also I teach at Trinity School for Ministry in Ambridge in Pittsburgh. Um, I uh, I also work in the area of mission and ethics. That's my primary academic interest. And before that, I was out in your direction, though, uh, in Chicago for about 10 or 15 years, helping to plant some churches. That's awesome. Well, Michael, again, as I said, he wrote an article that's up at the Gospel Coalition from just, I think it's today. I know a couple of days ago, navigating the pressure to preach on every current event. And anyone who listens to the show knows that both Ian and I are pastors. And so this kind of thing really resonates. And Michael, I think the crux of the article or the, or really what you're trying to answer is in that first question. How and when should a pastor speak up about current events? Cause we all face this pressure right now. There's so much stuff going on. Everybody thinks you even use the word demand, parishioners demand. That pastors speak to their specific concerns. So, uh, kind of at a at a big level, as we jump off there, how would you answer that question? How and when should a pastor speak up about current events? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I do think a, a big thing to to know first off is to realize that the sermon doesn't always have to be the place to address every topic. Mm-hmm. I think so many times for pastors, when we see something in the news, we first think do I have to preach on this and how do I preach on it and how does this fit in with what I was preparing for during the week? So I I think the, the one big takeaway is to think, you know, there are a lot of issues where um, you can, you can discuss it in a number of different ways. You could have a discussion with parishioners after, after service, you could post things in a newsletter. There are a lot of other ways to get at some of these topics um, I, I think that's the first thing that I think a lot of uh, pastors don't realize. Um, I think a, a second topic with that, too, is, is just acknowledging uh, our limitations mm-hmm. as pastors. Yeah. I think that we have to realize that if, if we're preaching on every current event that's happening every week, then uh, we're probably more like a, a kind of a political talking head than a pastor. <laughs> yeah. and, and so I think just acknowledging that um, – a lot of times our political opinions aren't going to change the world. Um, and that doesn't mean that we can't or shouldn't speak out on, on certain issues. Uh, but at the end of the day, um, realizing that our, our goal is first to, to draw people closer to Jesus. And I think from there, um, understanding our limitations, understanding the various ways in which we can talk about current issues mm-hmm. from there, then we can kind of really parse out kind of when to speak where. Yeah, that's great. That's a that's a good word. Uh, in the article early on, you talk about pews full of prophets, and I found that to be fascinating. What did you mean by this phrase, pews full of prophets? Yeah, what I, what I mean by that is that um, the you know we take maybe fifty or sixty years ago. If you think about a congregation, typically a lot of those people in the congregation are talking with one another throughout the week, mm-hmm. and they're having kind of built up some set of expectations as to what should be discussed. And then they show up on Sunday and they, they expect their pastor to kind of speak on those topics. Mm-hmm. But nowadays, you know, if you've got a hundred people, they're all engaging in their own very small online curated communities right. where they're having these kinds of conversations. And so you get a hundred different people that show up and they all have uh, 
their own set of very unique expectations as to what the pastor should be preaching on. And so the pastor stands up and, you know, they have they could be meeting one person's expectation and not meeting another person's. And it'd be very, very difficult to, to try and discern the difference. Yeah, what do you think is the way forward for churches, the pastors and just churches in general? Is it to to get more creative in the venues where we speak about current events? Because like you said, people are getting it everywhere, social media and everything. Is it just to be more upfront about what's the purpose of the of the sermon? What have you done in your church and what would you suggest the pastors do uh, thinking about this going forward? Yeah, I, I think the, the most important one is, I think for pastors, really setting some expectations for what uh, the people in your congregation should expect from you. Mm-hmm. I think even, you know, thinking of a, a sermon about the sermon. So really telling people, you know, here is my job in the sermon is to preach the word of God. And that's going to touch on certain things that are going on. Um, in the world, but it might not always in the way that you expect. And so I think really first setting those expectations so that people aren't expecting every single week for you to to stand up there and speak on the headlines. Um, I think from there, though, yeah, coming up with those different venues to have those discussions. So, you know, for instance, for our church after the, the Capitol riots, I just said, uh, you know, over over Zoom, Anyone who wants to after service can stick around. We can talk about these issues. We can pray about these issues and just kind of have an open forum. Mm. Um, so that was one of those areas in which I offer up a little bit of space for for people to share and for us to pray together. Um, and, and then again, that, that means then that people aren't expecting, you know, my my take on these things to come from the sermon. That's right. Uh, so you touched on it earlier, but something that Ian and I often talk about on the show is just how the rise and the just the accessibility of everything over social media has kind of changed things as a pastor, <laughs> like how, <laughs> how you have to wrestle with things. What's your view on that? How have you seen social media affect the church, maybe change all of this discussion? And maybe how do you talk to your your congregation about how to handle social media? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I've seen this this massive change just in the 15 or 20 years uh, of doing ministry. Obviously, uh, I mean, social media has amplified things. I, I think people both uh, I think they have more of a voice, which is a good thing. Um, but also with that, there is that that feeling, that expectation that um, I have to say something. Um, I, I think what, what I try to tell people is one is I think. It's important to take a step back and to actually really think about what and why you're on social media. Mm. Um, so even to, to say, here are the things that I use social media for and here are the things that I'm not going to use it for. Mm. Um, so even, you know, as a pastor, I, I just tell people I, I'm not really going to give my political opinions over social media. I I'm using social media as a bulletin board for the most part. I'm going to post pertinent information uh, about our church, about my life, things that I think people might need to know. I'm not going to have conversations over social media. I'm going to expect to have those face to face. I also, I think, have have some sort of understanding of how much time you're going to spend on social media. Uh, And obviously people are going to have different ways that they use it. My way of doing it is not for everybody, (laughs) but I, I think that, most people, I think, really haven't thought through deeply kind of why they are using social media, what the purpose of it is. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of times we just kind of get 
sucked into the soup um, and we and we kind of swim around. So I think that's probably the most important thing is just just to define that, come up with some guidelines and, and then stick to it. And getting sucked into the soup is a perfect way to describe social media. <laughs> I really think so. Michael, I'm really enjoying this. Really glad that you joined us. Why don't you tell us, speaking of social media, where are all the places people can find you, whether it be social media, website, podcast, blog, whatever you might have. Why don't you let people know where they can find you? Sure thing. Um, uh, the one thing that I have is uh, I, I do have a podcast called This We Believe, which really grew out of this desire to um, for Christian education, Christian formation during COVID, not being able to meet together to do those sorts of things. So I've been going through kind of line by line uh, these essential texts of the Christian faith. So I started with the Apostles' Creed and doing 10 minutes a week going line by line through that. And then we had a discussion as a church to discuss that. Now I'm going to go through the Ten Commandments mm. uh, as well. But that that's up there uh, wherever you get podcasts. This we believe. Um, Facebook. This we believe podcast. Uh, Twitter. We dash believe pod. Um, so that's a very easy way to connect. Um, if you want to um, hear anything more about what I have to say. That's awesome. Well, Michael Niebauer, uh, pastor of Incarnation Church in State College, the author of uh, an article we've been discussing here from the Gospel Coalition, Navigating the Pressure to Preach on Every Current Event. Michael, this is really fun. Great to meet you. Thanks for joining us today. Sure thing. You've been listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Howdy, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Flying solo today. Ian Simpkins not with us today, but he will be back hopefully tomorrow. And uh, yeah, we miss Ian and hope he was, be, will be able to join us tomorrow. If you've missed any of the show, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at Common Good Talk. What a beautiful day today. I know it's now it's getting dark, but it's just so nice to see the sun. Like I know it's sunny and cold. But sunny, uh, like cold and sunny is so much better than cold and gray. And I was just telling someone just yesterday about how it's just like gray feels like for two or three months here. But man, enjoy that sun today, even though it's cold. Uh, hopefully that sun will just kind of perk this all up today. I know it did for me. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's your weather report for the day. Uh, I wanted to end the show. Ian and I lately, especially in this time of uh, divisiveness in this time of COVID, in this time of just kind of heaviness. One of the things we've been trying to do is end the show with some inspirational things, just some surprising things, just some good news. And so try to leave you something to think about or to leave you uh, just with a smile on your face. And so today uh, we're often talk about how I'm the sports guy on the show. Here's what I want to do. I want to talk about two more stories out of the sports world that I think are just both inspiring and crazy and kind of cause us to really uh, just kind of wrestle a little bit. So first is out of the NBA. They're both out of the NBA, but Karis LeVert. Karis LeVert uh, was a, a main part of the Brooklyn Nets. But in the James Harden deal the other day, Karis LeVert was traded to the Indiana Pacers. Uh, and so he was bummed about that. Karis LeVert, he, was, he, he liked being on the Nets. And when he got traded, he felt totally healthy and everything was fine. Uh, and then... Uh, when they do, whenever somebody gets traded, they go through a mandatory physical, make sure everything's okay. And in that physical, Karis Levert, uh, they found a mass uh, 
they found a in that physical they revealed a mass. He said, I didn't have any symptoms. I was playing in games. I hadn't missed any games. I was feeling a hundred percent. So in a way, this trade definitely showed and revealed what was going on in my body. So I'm definitely looking at it from that side and definitely humbled to know that this trade could have possibly saved me. In the long run, uh, he was off to a great start this year, but I, I, I don't have much to say about this, but except what a crazy story. This guy was totally healthy, gets traded, goes through the mandatory physical. And what do they find? They find a mass, I believe, behind his leg. I think it was. And uh, they're able to take care of it. He's not able to play just yet, but will hopefully be able to play soon. And he's able to look back and go, uh, this trade that I was really upset about might have saved me. How many times does that happen? I don't I don't want to over spiritualize anything, all of this here, but I will for a second. Uh, How many times uh, do we look at something and go, God, what are you doing? Or that makes me so angry or whatever else. But then when we're able to look back, we go, ah, look at that. Look how that changed the course of my life or whatever else. What a crazy story about Karis LeVert. But then I want to focus in on Delonte West. I want to end our show talking about. Delante West. Delante West, he is age 37 now, but he was uh, in the NBA for, I think, like a decade. And so you would think that Delante West being that way in the NBA had all sorts of money. But Delante West fell on some really hard times, Uh, drug addiction, uh, all sorts of bad choices. He was uh, out of money, bankrupt, and pictures started circulating of him at literally panhandling on the streets of Dallas. So this is an ex-NBA player. Uh, He's 37 years old, and he is living on the streets. And so uh, what happened after that picture went viral, Dallas Mavericks owner Mark Cuban, who Delonte West played, one of the teams he played for was the Mavericks. uh, Mark Cuban went and picked him up and took him to rehab in Florida and said, hey, and started posting pictures like, hey, I want you to see what's happening. He was treated at the Rebound Therapy Center in Florida after Cuban picked West up at a gas station last September after pictures circulated of him panhandling. Uh, He also helped West reconnect with his mother. His mother didn't know where he was. And so Cuban was able to pick him up and help him get connected with his mom. And that was such a heartwarming story. Everybody who saw it, you saw it all over the news. Like, oh, man, that's great. Well, now we have an update. Delonte West is now working at the Drug Rehabilitation Center in Florida that he was brought to by Mark Cuban. He is now working there. His life is back on track, a source confirmed to ESPN. So I want you to think about this story. Delonte West had made millions upon millions upon millions of dollars, blew it all, drug, drug addiction, all sorts of other things, homeless, estranged from his mom, estranged from his family. He's living on the streets of Dallas. People are driving by going, is that Delonte Webb? But you couldn't even really recognize him. Homeless. Mark Cuban sees it, says, I'm going to do something about that. And he goes and picks him up, reconnects him with his mom, pays for him to go to this drug rehab center, where not only is Delonte West continuing to get the help that he needs, he is continuing to get off of drugs, but he's now working at that drug rehab center in Florida. I find that story as we close out this show so inspiring. I find that inspiring for a couple different reasons. One, you might be thinking to yourself, as I'm sure people did of Delonte West, what a failure. Like, wait, this guy had every opportunity. He was an NBA player. Like he was making more than we could ever imagine. And now he's homeless 
what's like he's he's he screwed up he's a problem and people would look down on him and how often does that happen even when we look in the mirror in our own lives and we go I, i'm worthless i'm a failure i'm whatever how many of you feel that way sometimes and i do think in this inspirational story of delante west uh, getting another chance. I think we are reminded of the bigger picture in our lives of the good news of the gospel. God doesn't give up on us. That God doesn't look at us and say failure. God doesn't look at us and say, oh, I can't believe what he's done with his life. I'm done with him. But instead, God shows us love and grace and patience and that that's good news. So the same way people, you might look at yourself, the way maybe people looked at Delante West, I want you to be reminded of that good news. But then also I want to highlight Mark Cuban in this story. Mark Cuban, you might know him from the Mavericks. You might know him from Shark Tank, wherever else. Mark Cuban looked at a problem, that being the pictures that he saw of Delante West. And he said, I'm going to go do something about it. He didn't have to. He'd already paid Delante West all the money when he paid him, when he played on his team. But instead, Cuban said, I'm going to go pick him up. And he went and... He cared for somebody that used to be in his life. He took action. And friends, I want to close there today. Uh, what would it be like if all of us saw, when we saw things that needed done, or when we saw people in need, or when we saw problems, we said, you know what? I'm going to be the one to take the time and the energy to be part of the solution. Uh, it's easy to go, ah, someone else will take care of them. But to say, you know what, I'm going to step in. I'm going to be one who steps in the gap here and begins this story of rehabilitation. This one's all over the news and this that. But what about we, we all come to little points in our life where we have the opportunity to be part of the solution, to be an instrument of good news. And the question is, will we take it up? Like good for Mark Cuban, right? You could be thinking, oh, he's a billionaire. No, he still took the time and the energy and he didn't have to do that. And that's what community looks like. That's what friendship looks like. That's what it looks like to be brothers and sisters in Christ, to stand for one another. So I want to end with that inspirational story. I really found that uh, to be uh, to remind me of the gospel and also remind me of the good news of what I can be in other people's lives. Well, it's a good show today. Hopefully, Ian will be back tomorrow. We're really glad that you joined us today. Have a great evening. My name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life.